listening to PetLifeRadio.com. You've had a long day at work, and you can't wait to just get home, take off your shoes, plop yourself down in your favorite chair, and relax. You walk up to your tranquil residential home and your neatly manicured lawn in your quiet suburban neighborhood, put the key in the lock, open the door, and... Yes, the pets have gone wild! What were you thinking? Welcome to the show about everything you always wanted to know about exotic pets. Where to get them, what to feed them, and how to care for them. You'll even find out why some people live with a monkey. Now, here's your host, exotic pet expert and author, Bob Tart. Hey, Bob, what were you thinking? Hi, I'm Bob Tart, author of the books Enslaved by Ducks and Fall Weather. And I want to remind you that I have a brand new book coming out in April 2012, uh, just a few months from now, if you are listening in December. And that book is called Kitty Cornered, and it's about life with six house cats. And life with six cats is uh, pretty chaotic, but uh, I got to tell you, it's, it's nothing compared to what my guest Ken Jones has faced. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about Ken. Ken is a producer on Pet Life Radio, uh, which is where I am, of course, and he's got a brand new podcast called Prince of Ponds. That's P-O-N-D-S, and it's a show about ornamental water features. Fish, ponds, waterfowl, uh, waterfowls. I'm the waterfowl guy. <laughs> Ken is the waterfall guy, and uh, fountains and uh, that kind of thing. Now, Ken worked as a designer and builder specialist in the landscape industry for over 30 years. But here's, I I think that's interesting stuff, but I got to be honest with you, I want to hear about Ken's podcast, but what has really intrigued me is that in the 1990s, Ken founded and managed the Tropical Rainforest Museum in California. Sounds pretty cool, huh? It was a nonprofit environmental educational program providing school assemblies and exhibits at county fairs, science fairs, and that kind of thing. Now, get this. I complain when uh, Linda and I have to take care of 30-some animals, but during this time, Ken Jones was responsible for caring for nearly 1,000 exotic animals that were part of the museum. And this is another thing that really intrigues me because uh, I'm an Apple guy. I've had a Apple computer, oh, going all the way back to the Apple IIc, so even before the Mac. And in the 1990s, Ken's group presented a jungle party for Steve Jobs for his six-year-old son Reed's birthday party. And this is at Steve Jobs' home in Woodside. So uh, we got a lot to talk about. Ken, I'm so happy that you've uh, decided to come on my show. So uh, how are you doing today? Hello, Bob. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah, great great to talk to you. I really want to find out what it's like to uh, deal with so many animals. Now, you really had a 1,000? <laughs> well, that's counting every every exotic spider and cockroach, you understand. That's amazing. How much square footage did this take up? Uh, well, at our height, our largest exhibit was 11,000 square feet in the largest mall on the western side of the Mississippi River, which was called the Great Mall in Milpitas. And that was our largest exhibit. Um, we moved from there to a, a more permanent uh, museum. And um, I would say that museum must have been about 4,000, three to 4,000 square feet. Wow. But, uh, yeah, we, we specialized in, I, I want to emphasize, uh, small animals. 
In fact, when I was considering doing a, a school assembly program and using live animals, I gave a lot of thought to the, uh, you know, to what kind of animals that would be appropriate and fair to, to the animals, as, you know, in addition to taking into account what people might want to see. Uh, there were other assembly programs that were taking um, exotic cats, for instance, to these schools. And uh, I knew these animals were going to be spending a lot of time traveling in a van, and uh, I ruled out uh, mammals right in the beginning. So we, we specialize in, in reptiles, and amphibians, and birds, various kinds of uh, exotic insects, all, all animals that you would find in one of the three major tropical rainforest regions of the world. Well, that brings me, of course, to the question of what was the idea behind the Tropical Rainforest Museum, and how did you ever get the idea to create it? It started with, uh, I, uh, before I was doing that, well, first of all, I'd always been interested in exotic animals. 15, 20 years before I started the Rainforest Museum, uh, back in my uh, teens and 20s, I worked for exotic animal veterinarians for a period of about 10 years. I sought them out because I was always curious about exotics and really appreciated uh, uh, appreciated them. And um, through these veterinarians, I, I was very lucky. I worked at some of the best, most uh, successful, best-known veterinary hospitals in California at the time. And and uh, I ended up being the night attendant for an exotic animal specialist who, you know, he and a part, his partner did the exotics full time. And uh, not a lot of veterinarians do that, but he had contracts with many uh, exotic animal parks. And uh, as night attendant, I got to do things like get up at 2 in the morning and give the baby elephants their formula. <laughs> oh, that's very cool. Check on uh, bears and tigers and other critters that were awake, had been had surgery that day and so forth. So... <laughs> Yeah, it was uh, a wonderful one and uh, wild. Yeah, what, <laughs> what an amazing thing to do. Then. That's but, just incredible. Uh, I, I did uh, get involved in the environmental movement in the early 90s. My daughter was young, and I felt like there was more, because of my innate interest in these kinds of things, there's more I should have, should be doing to help um, with environmental concerns. So I got involved in the Earth Day organization, ended up chairing the Earth Day Festival for the city of San Jose for a couple of years. And while doing that work, I met some... Uh, folks that had done uh, work in the in the rainforest and I arranged for them to come and talk to some schools so through that partnership and seeing how enthusiastic the schools were to get speakers on on the topic of the rainforest I decided to combine my interests I had a couple of parrots at the time so um, I, I thought I'd take the parrots to the uh, to the schools and talk about the tropical rainforest and, and uh, conservation and, and what kids could do even today to, to help uh, save the rainforest. So that proved really popular, and um, so the collection grew. <laughs> what kind of parrots did you have at that time? We, at the time, had an African gray. Uh, Love the African grays. Yeah. Wonderful characters. And uh, and a macaw, blue and gold macaw. Uh, eventually, within a couple of years, we had 11 citizens, uh, cock cockatoos and, and macaws and parrots that we took uh, had in the museum. The museum was open to the public. It had uh, routine hours, and, uh, and but we also took some of those those animals, uh, the ones that were the tamest, usually to the uh, to the schools to do the assemblies as well. Well, you mentioned, or at least in the introduction, I, I mentioned that you gave a jungle party for uh, Steve Jobs' son, and that sounds pretty cool. What's a jungle party? Yeah, well, um, in addition to the uh, the school assemblies, which of course were primarily educational, although we had a lot of fun elements uh, mixed in with that. We also did, for birthday parties, we'd come out and do a jungle party. It was just another way to raise funds to help cover the bills, take care of these animals. 
So we would go out for um, children's birthday parties and um, do a um, a little more entertaining version. We'd include some educational components to it too, but uh, we didn't lose sight of the fact that it was a party. So we tried to uh, we just brought out the the best of the animals to to these uh, children's birthday parties. Oh, I bet and the kids they, went they crazy. Jungle theme, and we give a little talk, and we give them a chance to uh, to pet the parrots and the pythons and and stuff like that. Oh, you you have pretty nice parrots if you could pet them. <laughs> we did. We had uh, we had a few that were very very. Yeah, I we bet. had some wonderful animals. I, I really grew very attached to those animals after working with them so much. But we had uh, we had numerous pythons and boa constrictors and of all, of all sizes, both small and large, and uh, and uh, the parrots, tortoises. What else would go to a jungle party? Oh, an iguana. We had some of the um, the green iguanas were very tame. Rusty was the name of one guy, one male we had who was. Very orange in color, so that's how he got his name. And he was so he was so good. He just he let kids pet him all day long. <laughs> so we take critters like that out to these jungle parties, and we mixed a little. You know, I, I'd go dressed as Indiana Jones. Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah, sure. The kids love that. I, I I explained I was not Indy, but Indy's brother. <laughs> but, um, we had a whole little pattern that went with that, and uh, and we talked about. Uh, conservation of the rainforest and the kinds of animals and, and even the kinds of people and uh, the societies that live there and that kind of thing. What was it like to give a jungle party at Steve Jobs' house? Well, that was, a, of course, a big thrill for me because I'd been an, uh, an Apple fan since 1984 when the Max first came out. I got one of those. In fact, it's still sitting here under my desk with a, a nice layer of dust on it. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> been through a few Macs since then. But Max made a big difference in my business life. It allowed me to get into computers and, and to do things myself that uh, would have been more difficult to do uh, without. So I really, uh, really was fond of the uh, the Macs. And uh, and so when Mrs. Jobs called, at, at first I did, I you know, I was a little reluctant to believe that was wasn't a gag. <laughs> but uh, it it turned out to be indeed Mrs. Jobs calling to. She I don't know how she heard about the jungle party. I wish I could remember that, but she somehow <laughs> heard about our jungle parties, probably from somebody else we had done. We were uh, based in uh, Silicon Valley at the time, in Sunnyvale, and um, uh, she wanted a jungle party for her son, whose uh, name is Reed. He was six years old, I believe, at the, at the time, and um, she asked us to come bring it out to their home. Now, their home was, at that time, it was the, you know, the large woodside home that got in the news quite a bit, because years later, they wanted to demolish it and, and you know, basically rebuild it. But it had some historical significance, so there were members of the community who wanted to, who were trying to stop that. Um, so there was quite a, a struggle over that house for, for a few years. It was in the media from time to time, but it was a very impressive. It looked more like a lodge. It was a huge wooden wooden house, uh, a lovely atmosphere. And uh, we we did the uh, the jungle party, our presentations, and our sharing with the animals on a veranda outside. And it was overlooking a huge lawn, just a big, beautiful lawn, surrounded by trees. Other than that, it was very, you know, average and ordinary for a jungle party or a birthday party. I remember there being uh, maybe 12 to 15 children and a few parents, and uh, fun was had by all. Now, my big um, question is, did you get a chance to meet Steve Jobs? Yeah, well, as a matter of fact, of course, I was on the lookout for Steve. I <laughs> yeah. he'd be there for his son's birthday party, and he was. However, he was out on walking around the perimeter of the lawn with another man. 
and uh, he never did see any of our animals or see what we did, uh, our, our magic and our presentation that we did. He was not part of any of that. And I thought that was a bit odd. So I didn't uh, interact with Steve until we were packing up, ready to go. We loaded the animals in the van out in the driveway, and Steve appeared out there as if he would just said goodbye to whoever he was meeting with. Keep in mind, this was that same summer that Steve was coming back to Apple and uh, bringing out the new iMac. Oh, yeah. So he was uh, he was in the depths of reinvigorating this company and coming out with uh, a revolutionary computer, a new product to try to save uh, Apple. And uh, I'm sure that's what that was, you know, that's exactly what we saw evidence of when he was meeting with somebody very important, obviously, out there. And uh, but he uh, he came over, stuck out his hand, said, "I, I want to thank you for coming out for my son's party." And I said, "Thank you." And I said to him, "I said I, I want you to know that the Mac computer has meant meant a lot to me. It's been a big help uh, to me in my personal life and my business. And I want to thank you for the work you've done on these computers." Wow. And I thought it was a you know it just seemed like a real opportunity for me to thank the man that it you know it, it made a difference in my life uh, through you know his work. Yeah, what an amazing guy, and what a, what a great opportunity for you. Yeah, That's really fantastic. Yeah, nice to be able to do that. However, his response wasn't quite what I expected. Oh, what was it? Well, he he gave me that famous Jobsonian stare. <laughs> he didn't say anything. He didn't say you're welcome or, or nothing. He said nothing to my uh, gratitude, my uh, thanks uh, for what he'd done. He just stared at me. And as if I, <laughs> as if he's trying to figure out what I was saying, as if I was speaking a foreign language, and I just turned and got back in the truck. And wow. left. It was a really awkward <laughs> moment for me. I, I didn't know what to say. So um, I know I caught his attention for at least a moment. He was thinking about what I said, but I have no idea what he was thinking. Yeah, maybe he was rerunning the conversation he just had uh, with someone it else could in be. his mind. Hey, who yeah. knows? Who yeah. knows? But you know, Steve was uh, was known for for making people feel uncomfortable. Hmm. He was not known as being a, a real gracious fellow, right? And I, I got a good uh, first-hand dose of that. <laughs> but it doesn't, it doesn't diminish my respect no. for the, what he's achieved. No, nope. and uh, and I had a, a great time out at his home. It was a, a lovely home. They were great people. His wife was very uh, charming. We had a great time with with our animals and the, and their kids and their friends. Well, we're at the halfway point right now, so I want to remind everyone that you're listening to What Were You Thinking? And my guest is Ken Jones, the Prince of Ponds, and his website is princeofponds.com. That's P-O-N-D-S. And we will be right back with Ken after this word from our sponsor. What Were You Thinking? We'll be right back after Bob gets the ducks out of his living room. Don't go away. Buster, you're telling me my dog food products can't go on your shelves? That's right. Didn't pass one of my Petco certified nutrition checklists. Sorry, Wayne. Who made these checklists? Geniuses. Very smart guys. Well, it's good enough for most grocery stores. Do you see cheese puffs on my shelves? Mayonnaise? Soda pop? No. That's because I ain't running no grocery store, Wayne. Your pets will get better nutrition, I guarantee it. Petco, where healthy pets go. Go to PetLifeRadio.com slash Petco and get $6 off your order of $60 or more and up to 40% off hundreds of items at Petco. PetLifeRadio.com slash Petco. 
The new Dyson Animal Vacs are powerful bagless upright vacuums for homes with pets. Air muscle and radio root cyclone technology generates the strongest suction power to powerfully remove dust, dirt, and pet hair from the home or car. To order your Dyson Animal Vac, go to PetLifeRadio.com forward slash Dyson. PetLifeRadio.com forward slash Dyson. To order your Dyson Animal Vac today. Dyson. Music to your ears. I don't make any decisions about who to hire without going to Angie's List first. You'll find reviews on home repair to health care written by people just like you. With Angie's List, I know who to call and I know the results will be fantastic. Angie's List. Who you can trust. Go to Angie'sList.com forward slash thinking and get 25% off any subscription. That's Angie'sList.com forward slash thinking. T-H-I-N-K-I-N-G. Every pet is unique. Maybe they're gray in the muzzle, yet young at heart. Maybe they're growing out of the puppy stage and into their paws and ears. Or maybe they're just trying to maintain a more girlish figure. At PetSmart, we have the right food for your pet at a great value for you. PetSmart. Be better together. Go to PetLifeRadio.com slash PetSmart and save up to 30% on toys, collars, leashes, PetSmart gift cards, treats, and more. Go to PetLifeRadio.com slash PetSmart today. Hi, this is Ken Jones from the Prince of Ponds podcast. The frogs are shaking the shakers, the turtles are hitting the slapsticks, and the koi are blowing the trumpets. It's party time here at Prince of Ponds. Out under the swaying palm trees, the pond fairies are kicking up their heels and spinning in delight in the twilight. Here on Pet Life Radio, it's time to celebrate the magic of ponds, waterfalls, fountains, and water gardens at the Prince of Ponds podcast. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Okay, ducks are in the pond, rabbits in his hutch, and monkeys. Oh, in my car! Oh, okay, well, I go check my insurance policy. We'll turn you back over to Bob. Hi, you're listening to What Were You Thinking with Bob Tart, and uh, let me remind you, my website is easy to remember, bobtart.com, and we're back with Ken Jones, and Ken, we're going to talk about your show in a minute, but I want to talk a little bit more about the Tropical Rainforest Museum, because you oh, had... Oh, I do too. Oh, yeah, you had so many, <laughs> so many cool animals. I'm curious if there is one animal that you thought would be maybe not too much trouble but turned out to be <laughs> turned out to be more of a handful than you anticipated oh yeah <laughs> i could name at least one i love the museum and i love the animals and we like i said we tried to specialize in animals that could be kept in terrariums so that they would travel well and they would not uh, they would not suffer from being taken from you know uh, in and out of a van and into schools and that kind of thing so we used uh, we had a lot of other displays, educational displays as well. But we we had uh, oh we typically took out fifteen to twenty terrariums that included things like um, bird eating tarantulas and giant hissing cockroaches and uh, poison dart frogs. We had a, a 
beautiful collection. Well, a nice collection of beautiful frogs. I mean, I, I think those those frogs are just amazing. The red-eyed tree frogs, um, all those beautiful, exotic, colorful frogs from the rainforest. Most of the ones we had were domestic raised, by the way, which I always bought domestic raised animals when I could, and we often could. It's often it's surprising how many of these uh, exotic creatures you can buy from breeders that specialize in breeding these things these days. That's a good way to go, I isn't it? I consider it's a good thing. Yeah. And they make you know, they make better t- pets or captives because of it, you know. So um, we had, uh, yeah, we had uh, oh, all kinds of geckos and chameleons, like I said, the iguanas. And were any of those more difficult than you had anticipated? When you say difficult, I think of two things. We had a, um, a cockatoo named Cuddles, and everybody knew Cuddles. I mean, we, uh, at our peak, we had about 40 volunteers. So we had uh, everybody knew Cuddles. She was, um, <laughs> she was very outspoken. Moluccan cockatoo, a gorgeous bird, and she was very, very tame. And um, um, she went to all the jungle parties and all the school assemblies and uh, just a lot of fun. But she had the, the habit of, of wanting to chew things and um, more than any other bird, or more than all the other parrots put together. I don't know how she managed it. I swear she, we, we'd come in in the morning and she'd find something that was totally out of her reach, that she'd reach out, somehow get that, get hold of whether it was a, a, a cord or a, something decorative or a piece of fabric, and she'd pull it in her cage and chew it up. In the <laughs> so she destroyed more more things than she was worth, that's for sure. <laughs> she, she was just, it was just amazing how she was able to get hold of things and destroy them. I remember once my wife was on the phone talking to somebody, and then suddenly she couldn't hear the person on the phone anymore, and she looked down, and our African grade Dusty had, uh, of course, chomped the phone cord. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah well, you... that's the cuddle specialized <laughs> in that kind of stuff. And we had to tolerate it because she was such a star with the kids, you know, but boy, she was a lot of trouble. One of our... Um, giant uh, tarantulas made a cocoon and laid eggs and uh, cared for that cocoon as they do. She, uh, you know, gave it a lot of attention and sat near it and kind of protected those eggs uh, for a few weeks. And I came in one night after a long, hard day of traveling a lot of miles to, to go to these schools and unloading the, the animals in to the back of the museum and such. And I looked over and saw that the, uh, the cocoon had hatched and we had hundreds of baby tarantulas all over the walls and ceiling. Oh, no. <laughs> and this was a, uh, an elevated ceiling as well. I don't know. It must have been 14 feet high or something. And I ended up spending a good part of my night <laughs> on ladders collecting little baby tarantulas because we did not want those. No. See, the museum was in a mall. <laughs> and, yeah. and we had a restaurant next door. And I just I could see, you know, I just had nightmares for months afterwards. Some of the spiders managed to escape and invade the other spaces and create quite a, quite a havoc. I just knew that would wow. not be good. <laughs> that was one of the more nightmarish things wow. that happened. Well, that but, kind of kind of brings up um, the question about exotic animals as pets. Mm-hmm. And what's your opinion of that? And do you think that some are you know more suited for pets than others? I think anybody who works with exotic animals knows very well that some animals are are more suited for pets than others. And um, in general, I, I mean, I'd hate to see a world where nobody could get their hands on any kind of unusual animal and therefore, um, you know, be robbed of the, the, the wonderful experience of getting to know uh, an unusual creature and how to care for them and, uh, and how to breed them and so forth. But, but on the other hand, there's a lot of people are, are irresponsible with these animals. And, you, get, you know, we had that 
nightmarish thing that happened this uh, just a couple months ago. Was it in Ohio? I'm thinking where this, uh, this yeah that was guy terrible. Let all these animals loose, tigers, and yeah. bears, and all kinds yeah. of wild animals just loose before he committed suicide. I mean. I don't know how you protect against something like that, but that, that's just a horrible thing that happened, all those animals um, being put down and, and uh, danger to the community and everything else. So uh, certainly the large exotics, if they can be dangerous, if they can truly hurt people, including some of these giant snakes, they probably just should not be allowed, period. But there's an awful lot of exotic animals that are smaller, easier to keep. Uh, our bred in captivity are completely harmless, and, uh, and I'd, I'd, I'd hate to see those outlawed. Uh, of course, endangered species is another story again, but um, we didn't keep endangered species. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, and for educational purposes is another consideration. So it's not a real simple problem or, or, uh, or uh, I don't think a simple answer really. Well, I want to get back to the Tropical Rainforest Museum, but I don't want to give any short shrift to your new show for Pet Life Radio, which is Prince of Ponds. So, well, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate you mentioning that. I, I have uh, most of my life has been spent in the water feature industry, in the landscape industry, doing water features, uh, specialized in water features for uh, landscapers. And, and so I started the Ornamental Water Feature Academy, which is reached at ornamentalwaterfeatureacademy.com. And that's where the Prince of Ponds lives. Uh, <laughs> Prince of Ponds is also available to podcast. Um, speaking of, is available also on, uh, of course, Pet Life Radio. And uh, it's a podcast all about uh, or- ornamental water features um, from water gardens, which are your water plants and uh, fish, koi, pondfish, to uh, fountains and uh, lakes, lagoons, swimming pond, any kind of water, water feature. And I- I'm looking forward to having all kinds of experts uh, come in and-, and talk on all these different subjects. What kind of topics do you do on your show? We try to cover uh, every topic that we can come up with, everything from how to care for koi to uh, caring for uh, uh, water plants like water lilies to uh, controlling algae problems. Uh, the number one problem uh, I ran into in all those years of water feature uh, building was uh, people, um, if they already had a pond, algae control was a big concern. I found that a lot of water features were not thought out very well or built very well. And the fact is, I think most water features are built by people who don't do them very often and so don't get very good at them. And as a result, most water features are not done well and uh, really should be rebuilt. And half of my work over 30 years was rebuilding other people's mistakes. And I thought that was pretty, pretty amazing. Two things. One, that you know a lot of water features should be built better in the first place. And secondly, the people love their water features so much, they're willing to pay for them twice. Oh. Get it right. <laughs> yeah, I, I get it, yeah. yeah. How about people in northern climates? I, I'm up in Michigan where it gets very cold. Yes, Can sure. folks like me have a water feature? Oh, of course, yes. Uh, in fact, uh, some of the prominent water plant nurseries in the country are, are in your kind of country. <laughs> no kidding. yeah. Uh, there's a, a lot of the water plants are hardy varieties that, that come back every spring. They go dormant in the winter, but they, they do beautifully throughout spring and summer. And, and uh, the fish can do well, too. The, the problem, you know, really the only concern is that, you know, the water freezing up, you don't want your pond to freeze solid. So you need a pond that's big enough, deep enough, 
And uh, some of them need the help of a de-icer, which is a very simple device that simply floats in the water with a very long extension cord that sits out there and keeps a hole in the ice so that uh, some oxygen can get to the fish down below. But the fish go dormant in the winter as well in that very cold water. But they're built for it. They're designed for it. They, they tolerate it just fine as long as you uh, give them the basics that they need. Now, here's kind of an odd question for you. I, I live about 500 feet from the Grand River here in Michigan, and I've had people tell me before that they have a pond that they've uh, made in their yard, and before they know it, they have a great blue heron showing up uninvited and dining oh, yeah. on the fish. So yeah. what can a person do for a situation like that to you know safeguard the little creatures that they have? Yes, here in North America, we're, we're, we're blessed with herons and raccoons that cause us uh, some worry in our pond. And... Uh, in the case of herons, um, herons don't dive for fish. They generally um, do their fishing by wading into the water. And in both cases, with both predators, uh, the way to foil them, there's a few things you can do. One of them is, is in the very first place when you're designing your pond, make sure your pond is deep enough. Because if it's shallow, it turns into to just a, a buffet for these predators. They can wade in there and capture them and knock them out of the water and eat them. And uh, that's awful to have happen. So you want you want your pond to be uh, two to three or maybe even four feet deep, and uh, the other and 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 don't uh, build in a lot of shallow areas. I mean, if you have shallow areas, they should be there for a specific purpose, such as maybe a bog. But uh, that's not where you're going to be. Uh, your fish uh, shouldn't have access to that. So um, uh, generally speaking, having deep enough water. Another thing that out here in California that's used a lot are these inflatable um, owls and snakes. And the snakes are a really simple uh, thing. You can put an inflatable snake and float it on the water, and that tends to, to keep the, uh, the herons from landing nearby. They, they see that snake from up above, and they assume it's real and alive. And, and they move around on the water readily, you know, being inflatable and all, so that they, uh, they, uh, they kind of look alive and moving to the, to the herons. So that, that's a very simple and easy way that works pretty well. Well, it sounds like you've got a lot of good tips and a lot of great knowledge. I want to encourage everyone to check out your show on Pet Life Radio, Prince of Ponds. And how can people contact you to learn more? At princeofponds.com. That'll take you to our Academy website uh, automatically. And uh, my email and phone number is all over the website. So I'm very reachable either way by email or, or phone. Good. Well, we are just about out of time, and again, it's uh, princeofponds.com, and the show is Prince of Ponds on Pet Life Radio, and I've been talking to Ken Jones, the founder of the Tropical Rainforest Museum, and I really want to thank you for being on the show, Ken. Well, thanks, Bob. It's been a lot of fun, and uh, you have a terrific show. I enjoy uh, listening to you and all the things that your, your family of critters go through there, and uh, uh, I appreciate the invite. Oh, thanks so much. And I'd like to thank everyone for listening. And you can email me at bob at petliferadio.com. And my website is bobtart.com. And as always, I'd like to thank my wonderful producer, Mark Winter, at uh, petliferadio.com. So uh, bye, everybody. And thanks again, Ken. Thinking about buying a monkey? How about a ferret or a skunk? Then check out the show that will answer the burning questions, where do you get them? What do you feed them? How do you take care of them? And most of all, what were you thinking? With exotic pet expert and author Bob Tart, every week on demand from PetLifeRadio.com. <laughs>